the trumpets that were used as they gathered together. Sometimes sounds like a trumpet, sometimes like a sick cow. I bought this one in Tiberias on the shores of Lake Galilee back in 2005. And um, I generally often forget, the problem with this little guy is you put it like this and this part's right in your ear. So you got to remember to turn it out this way. I'm done. So with that, we have before us a model of the tabernacle, and I want to answer a few questions about the model that we have because people often ask me. Um, I'm grateful that we could fit it in. If I put the whole model that I have up, uh, it's actually 50 feet long and comes out about 15 feet on this end. So everything here is a little bit compressed and not exact to ratio, but it's all made to represent something that uh, is the, the picture of things as they were then. So um, the tabernacle model, people want to know where it came from. Originally, it was actually a product of Randy Amos, and he was at Pine Bush Camp up in New York, and they, the young people at the camp for their summer project kind of thing, they built the furniture of the tabernacle out of cardboard. And there happened to be a man who saw it, who was a very skilled carpenter, who said, I can do better than that. So the idea idea was formulated to build something that was portable. So this whole thing breaks down, all the furniture breaks down, goes in its own boxes, and goes inside a trailer so it can be transported and set up in various places. And in the beginning, there wasn't everything that you see now, so there were a lot of pieces that were added. Sylvia Amos did all of the hangings, the curtains, the garments for the high priest, and um, other people contributed. Uh, Just recently, these golden boards were added a couple years ago from a brother out in California, uh, Dave Dixon. And uh, so, you know, things were added as as it went along. My contribution was the goat and the sheep. So um, that's where the model came from. Now, when we think about the tabernacle, it's important to, I'm going to be pointing to this chart on the wall up here, this, this picture on the wall up here. It's important to remember that the term tabernacle, which basically means a tent, remember the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, and in a sense, they had tents they lived in, and God said, I'm going to live in a tent, but my tent's going to be different, and I'm going to give you the design for my tent. And we'll talk more about that as we move along. But basically, that's what a tabernacle was, a portable structure in which people lived. You saw that verse in Exodus 25 said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell there. So it was God's desire to dwell, to be, live close to his people. And so they could get very close, but it had its limitations, as we'll see, too. So sometimes when we talk about the tabernacle, we talk about everything we see here, this outward fence or wall, uh, everything that's inside, the whole thing. Sometimes when we talk about the tabernacle, that's what we talk about. More often than not, when we think of the tabernacle proper, we think of this particular tent that was in the middle of this, uh, or not in the middle, but at the end of this courtyard here, this open place. And then if we wanted to get even a little bit more technical, there was an inner veil that we'll see in a bit that is also called the tabernacle. So it's always helpful to know which piece we're talking about when we think about the tabernacle. Now, um, obviously, as I said, everything here is scaled down a bit. So the altar is not the exact size of what the altar would have been. This piece of furniture we don't have the dimensions for. This piece of furniture we don't have the dimensions for. But this piece of furniture, this piece of furniture, and the one that's inside of here are built to the exact size as far as we get the measurements from Scripture. 
So uh, you have at least three pieces that are built to the same size. Now, people will look at this model and they'll say, oh, there ought to be uh, another rim around this or the post ought to be on the outside, not the inside. You'll see all kind of different pictures, presentations, because we don't know exactly some of those things. But the basic concepts are still here. Did this particular curtain look exactly like this or that one? We don't know exactly, but the representation and the color schemes are what they ought to be. So when we think about the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, this was about uh, 150 feet long. So you think of that, and, and across here in the front was about 75 feet. And this tent here, this tabernacle here, which would go from this point to here, was 45 feet long. This section would have been 30 feet long, and this 15. And then it was 15 feet high. So 45 by 15 would have been the dimensions of that. The outward uh, linens that we have here is what provided that wall around the whole of of the outside. And then... Um, these walls would have been about seven and a half feet high. So they were taller than anybody could actually look in when you think about it. So that's the basic uh, dimensions of the tabernacle. And then it, there's so many things here. And I, I confess to you that some of it was very complex. And some of it to this day I read and I, you know, I wonder what that meant or exactly how it was. But when we think about it in its basic uh, design and its basic things, then uh, we can really grasp some of the truths that God wants us to know. So let's begin by thinking about the major pieces of furniture and articles in the tabernacle. So now I'm going to rely on the young people, young being anybody under 15, 15 or under, which is probably most of these folks here, right? Yes, good, good. So if you know the answer to the question, raise your hand, and I'll call on you. I'll try to call on you as I see you. And one of the things I've found in doing this presentation is it amazes me, number one, the interest that the young people have. You know, sometimes people think, man, the Old Testament, it's boring, and all that stuff you can't know. And it's really, that's not the case. Young people have a great interest in it. Which, by the way, I should have mentioned one other thing. On the table back here, uh, there are some brochures you're welcome to have, uh, some books, and some pamphlets. The pamphlets actually were the result of the series I did here on how we could trust the Bible. So there's a five-part series that was developed out of that series that I did here. So you folks in part are, you know, had a part in that. And uh, there's another card that really just tells about the tabernacle model, but there's a nice pamphlet there that talks about the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and what it represents. So help yourself to those if you like. So let's begin by this. Can you tell me what this was called? Yes. You, you, yes, it was, it was, you, yes, a burnt offering, but the altar of sacrifice or Yeah, the altar. Basically, if you just say the altar, you got it. Now, it's called the brazen altar. It may well have been made out of copper, but uh, it's, this was the place, as was mentioned, of sacrifice. It was the largest piece of furniture in the courtyard. And by the way, this whole thing divides up into basically three parts. You have this biggest part of it was this outer courtyard, which is what you have up here, this whole what's called the courtyard, all outside, natural light, and then there's two other parts of this big structure here, the tabernacle. It had two rooms. First room was bigger than the other room. Do you know what the name of this first room was called? Yes. The holy place, the holy place. yes. Um, the holy place. Now, there's another room here, and you know what this one is called? Yes. The holy of holies or the holiest of all. So there were three parts, courtyard, holy place, 
holiest of all or holy of holies. So now we have this piece of furniture uh, used in the tabernacle, which was called the altar or the brazen altar or the altar of sacrifice. And then we have this here. Now, this piece of furniture we don't have the dimensions for, but it had water. Anybody know what this was called? Let's see, you. I have it called on you. The brass laver, I think, is what you said, right? Very good. The laver or the place of washing. Now, some of you that are here remember my father-in-law, J.T. Elliott. He's with the Lord now. But J.T. was uh, quite the fella, you know. J.T. was a plumber and a pipe fitter and a welder. And uh, he had very specific things, you know, like you don't call that thing in the bathroom a sink. That's a lavatory. Sinks in the kitchen. Lavatory is in the bathroom, you say. Okay, JT. You know, he was a big man. I didn't buck him. So anyway, um, uh, but when we think of that lavatory and we think of a laver as a place of washing. Now, if we come inside this room, well, this one's pretty obvious. What do we call this one? Let's see who I haven't. You. Lampstand. Some places call it a candlestick, but it was a lampstand because it burned oil for the light. So now remember, one other thing just to think about for a minute. You see this structure here. For demonstration purposes, we've opened this up. But remember, this whole thing would have been covered over from the outside with this particular covering here, and you wouldn't have been able to actually see inside of these two rooms. So this was all was covered, and there was no source of light from the outside here. The only light was the light of the lampstand for this particular part of this room. Okay, lampstand, <clears throat> and then this one here ought to be kind of easy too. Anybody tell me what this one is? No, This one here. Can you see it? Oh, wait, back here in the back. Yes, you. You with hand up. A table, yes, it's a table. And what's, yes? The table of showbread, yes. It has bread on it, see? Bread right here. Don't try to eat this, but there's bread there. Now, I, I was telling the guys yesterday when we were setting up, I used to go out and buy these like every time I do the presentation. And finally, I thought, you know, I'm just going to varnish them. So uh, it reminds me, too, that they had that holy anointing oil on them. In this case, is varnish, so don't try to eat it, but it's actual bread. Okay, so let me go again. We got the altar, we got the laver, we got the lampstand, we got the table of showbread. How about this piece here? Yes. The altar of incense, sometimes called the golden altar or the altar of incense. Now, remember this. When it comes to the major pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, there's only seven pieces of furniture, okay? Seven pieces of furniture. Now, you got to help me because I can confess to you honestly, math has never been my strong suit, okay? So thus far, we have one, the altar, two, the laver, three, the lampstand, four, the table of showbread, five, the altar of incense, how many did I say there were? Five. Yeah, that's five we counted, but there's seven in total, right? Now, anybody, can you raise your hand and tell me? If I can get these back a little bit. What's in here? Let's see, you haven't answered yet. Me? Yes, you. Can you see it? Uh, you. Yes. That's, uh, okay. Let's go with mercy seat. Now, if we go with mercy seat, we got one, two, three, four, five, six. I told you I wasn't good at math, but there's actually seven. The Ark of the Covenant. So really what you have in here is two pieces. The bottom part of the box was wood covered with gold. The top part was solid gold, and it's two pieces. So that gives us the seven major pieces of tabernacle furniture. Get this back a little bit so maybe you can 
be able to see it a little better. Okay, seven pieces of furniture. Now, going back to what we said at the first, God was very specific in that, as it said in our passage, see that you build everything according to the pattern. It wasn't just that God was picky about, you know, furniture and stuff like that. Everything presented a specific truth, or sometimes several truths. This was God's way of illustrating truth to the Israelites. Now, what's interesting is that if you, if you were to take, uh, well, they couldn't have done a drone shot back then, but imagine if this cover is off, like we have this uncovered here, and you were looking down at an aerial view of the tabernacle as it was set up and set up in the way that God said to set it up. This is how it would have looked from an aerial view. Now, am I saying that that was supposed to be in the shape of a cross? All I'm saying is this is how it looked from an aerial view. Make what you will of it. That's how God had it set up and designed. So it's very interesting to think about, isn't it? And even more than that, it was very important that they put things in their proper place. Why? Well, let's think, let's think about that just for a moment. Anybody tell me what this is called? It's a tough question here. Any young people know what we call this? You do? Uh, it is a veil of sorts, but that's not exactly what it's called. Um, anybody else? You. The what? Cordon. Oh, the curtain. Sorry. Um, it is a curtain, but it has a, it has a kind of a specific name. Yes. The gate. Yes. And a gate is where you go in and out, right? Okay. Very good. Now. Now I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to tell you the honest truth. Nobody has ever got this question right. Nobody. You might be the first. I seriously doubt it. (laughs) But nobody has ever got this question right. Okay, you ready? What color am I? Yes. Tan. Tan. He says tan. Anybody else? What color am I? Dark? Uh, white. No. White? Dark brown. Dark brown. I've had everything from beige to, uh, you know. Donald Trump's color. Donald Trump, orange <laughs> man. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, here's the reason why nobody's ever got this right. Because there isn't really a right answer for it. But But there's a point to be made. Because somebody said white. Now, I've had some people say, you're Caucasian. And I'm like, is that a color? I mean, I don't remember when I had my box of Crayola crayons looking to say, I'll take the Caucasian crayon. You know, there, there was no color in the box called Caucasian, you see. And, and yet the point is this, that, well, I don't even have to illustrate it with the white sheets that are here, the white linen. I could just say, well, if I'm white, what is this shirt? White. I'm certainly not the color of this shirt. And this is the point, that these white sheets were what the Bible called pure white linen and they surrounded the tabernacle like sort of a fence of white now another hard question young people anybody know what the color of pure white represents in oh, you do well yes that's always a good answer yeah. holy holiness yes purity yes well, no, holiness and purity. This is the answer I, yes. Light. Well, light in its purest sense, yes, but holiness and purity, pure white linen. So that surrounds this whole tabernacle structure here, you see, seven and a half feet high. Now, we were talking last night about fences a little bit, and uh, when you build a fence like that, you, do you remember the term we said that was used for a fence that's, that's big like that? Do you? A privacy fence, yes. And a privacy fence is there because 
you, you don't want people seeing you in your yard, or maybe you don't want to see what's going on in their yard, you know, so you build a privacy fence. But if your neighbor comes along, like we had a neighbor do recently, kind of catty corner to us, and puts up a seven and a half foot high fence, I think he put up an eight foot fence, um, and it happened to be white, which doesn't make it here or there. He's pretty much saying, I don't want to see what's going on in your backyard, and I don't want you coming in to my yard. It really says keep out. Privacy. So imagine now if the whole tabernacle had been these white sheets all the way around. But it wasn't white sheets all the way around. You had a 30-foot gate at the front. I call it God's neon sign. So even if you'd have been an old dumb Amalekite up on the hillside somewhere and you're looking down at this tabernacle structure and all these white sheets thinking, I wonder how you get into the thing. Oh, I see how you get in. This clearly marked the entrance of how to get in. So on the one hand, the message of pure holiness and God's ultimate holiness and purity in a sense says, you know, there's a barrier between me and you. But on the other hand, God says and communicates by putting this multicolored gate up there, I want you to know the way to get in. I want you to come in. That's the character of God. He wants you to come, you see. And yet, if you're going to come, you got to come the way that God says. And so imagine now, you saw this tabernacle structure, and you know you, you, you come in through the gate, because this is the entrance, you see, and the first thing you meet is the altar, a place of sacrifice. What message does that say? Well, it says that if I'm going to approach God and I'm going to come God's way, I come by way of the death of a sacrifice. And by the way, God didn't put gates all over the thing. We sometimes sing, don't we, the young people, one door and only one. God didn't put like six doors there and say, just pick a way to get in. No, he put one door. So he said, I want you to come in. But when you come in, you're going to come my way. And this is why it was so important that the furniture be arranged in the proper way. Now, I'm going to ask you guys a hard question this time. Just imagine, for for instance, if the altar, instead of being here, was over here, and the first thing that you met when you came through the gate was the laver with the water. What message would that have communicated? Do you know? Yes, you need to be washed before you can get next to God. In a sense, that's true, isn't it? But, you see, it wasn't the coming in and the performing of the washing that was first. The first thing was the sacrifice. Yes. Well, that's that's a part of it, yes. Well, let's think about it this way. What if you came through the gate and put it in a little more modern thinking? What if you came through the gate and the first thing you met was an ATM machine? <laughs> I mean, then that communicates a message. You know, I got to pay to get in. That wasn't God's message. God's message was, if you're going to come, you're going to come by the means that I have designed. You're going to come by way of the altar, and by the sacrifice, and by a death of a substitute. Now, all of this ultimately was pointing to something, and all of this ultimately was pointing to the truths that God would eventually teach the Israelites, but it was basic lessons uh, for their basic learning. Um, what time? I've not good with time. Tell me again. Okay, thank you. Um, so now, let's go back now to think about the tabernacle as a whole. And these are all just introductory things we're thinking about. One of the things about the tabernacle that was unique, very unique, is that really what happened was, it, this wasn't like God, like sometimes say a Sunday school teacher does and says, you know, i got to come up with an object lesson. I want to teach these kids something. So let me come up with an object lesson. I know I'll make a tabernacle. 
No. Um, it was a pattern, but it was a... Well, let's, let's go there and look. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, because it's very important to see this. Hebrews chapter 9. By the way, your understanding of the book of Hebrews will be greatly helped if you understand what the tabernacle represents. And I, I would suggest, too, that your understanding of the book of Revelation will be greatly enhanced if you understand what the tabernacle represents. So in Hebrews chapter 9, we read about the tabernacle as it stood then and how it was set up. But drop down, if you would, uh, to verse 9. In verse 9 of Hebrews 9, it said, This was a figure for a time then present. A figure. Does anybody have a different word in Hebrews 9, 9 for where it says figure? You do. A symbolic, yes. Uh, The actual word when you translate it is the word parable. So it was a heavenly thing represented in earthly uh, earthly things. It was bringing heavenly things down into earthly forms. Now, that's very important because when God said to build the tabernacle, what he really was saying was, I want you to replicate in this pattern on earth things that actually exist in heaven. Okay? So now look further in Hebrews chapter 9 and look down at verse 23. It says, it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens, see the pattern of things in the heavens, should be purified with these, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And then um, when you think about that, so let's, Let's just think through some of these things for just a moment. Anybody tell me what these are? Well, by the way, do you know what this, this is called? Hmm. You almost raised your hand. This is the, the veil. Yes, yes. Hard one now. Anybody know what this curtain is called? This is a tricky one. I'll give you a hint. That was a gate, which was a way to get in the courtyard. But if you're going to go through a room, you have to usually go through a door. Yes, so this was a door to get into the holy place. This was the veil. And what are these figures here representing? Yes, Uh, kind of. Um, Yes. Well, in a sense, yes. Uh, almost. Cherubim, yes, cherubim. These are heavenly creatures, cherubim, okay? And, and back to the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, these are cherubim, right? Cherubim. Now, what you can't see very well, I'm gonna try to get it out here where you can, is this piece of hanging here that was the tabernacle, also called tabernacle, it has on it cherubim. And really, this would have been like this on both sides. And that would have provided the ceiling. Because it went, see, all of this went all the way over this. So this would have been the ceiling. So when the priest stood in here and looked up at the ceiling, he saw the cherubim. When he looked here at the wall, he saw the cherubim. When he was in here, whenever they did, uh, over that whole thing, cherubim. Why cherubim? Now, that's not a question for you to answer yet, except to say that there are places in Scripture where this is called uh, the very throne of God. So if you look on the, on the model, on the picture here, there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar or a column of smoke by day. And just as a little side note, I've only seen one picture that I think actually act accurately uh, portrayed that because there is a psalm that talks about that covering that the cloud may have gone up from there 
but in the daytime actually covered the whole camp, providing shade in the desert. And then the pillar column of fire going up, covering at night, providing protection in the same way in the desert. But be that as it may, this was God's presence come down, and he sat symbolically, but in a sense, really, in that pillar, right here on this lid of the Ark of the Covenant, or the mercy seat, as Luther translated it, if you translated Luther's German, the grace chair. It was the place where God enthroned himself. When the Israelites came over and crossed the Jordan River, they carried the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. This was God's throne on earth where he sat and presenced himself. Now, if you go to the book of Revelation and you see there the description of the throne of God, it is surrounded with the living creatures, you see. If you go to Ezekiel and you see there the vision that Ezekiel had of the throne of God, it is surrounded with the living creatures. So you see what I'm saying that for is to tell you that what God was saying is that this, in a sense, is heaven brought down to earth in picture form. And the lessons that could be learned there in these things about spiritual truths in heaven. Pretty phenomenal when you think about it. So everything in there had a purpose. Now, the other thing is, and uh, we may or may not get into this much right here, but basically remember three places here. This big area was called? Courtyard. Holy place. Holy of holies, or the holiest of all. This was the place where sacrifices were made. In this room, this is where the service of God was done, according to the book of Hebrews. This place, well, it was different, wasn't it? So we have only one priest in our presentation, and he is modeled after the high priest. Another hard question. Do you know what his clothing is called? There's a general term for the description of his clothing. You, young lady, do you know? No. You in the back. It is a robe, yes. Garments, but they're garments of glory and beauty. So when the high priest was normally dressed, he had the garments of glory and beauty. Underneath there, he also had a linen robe. Now, there was a one high priest, and then there were other priests who were from what tribe? Levi. Yes, they were Levites. So a specific tribe. There were priests. They didn't wear the garments of glory and beauty. Everybody knew who this guy was because he had this special clothing on, right? And so they could easily identify who the high priest was. And uh, the average Levite just wore the white garments. So the average Levite priest, the everyday Levite priest, they could come in here. Matter of fact, they had to come in here. They had to keep the lampstand lit. They did a better job than I do. And uh, they had to make sure the bread was on the table and that the incense was burning on the altar of incense. They ministered and served God in this section of the tabernacle. But this place, this place, the holy of holies, the holiest of all, who could go in there? You. Which priest? That one, yes, the high priest. Good guess. <laughs> the high priest. And he could only go in there one day a year, which was the day of Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement. Now, I want you to think about this. I, I, I don't know how many times I've said this. I probably even may have said it here. I don't know. But as elaborate as this system was, and God himself designed it, and with all of its sacrifices and with all of its offerings and everything else, it had its limitations. Because this whole system could only get one man into the direct presence of God 
one day a year. And he didn't spend all day in there. That's all this system could do. So while in a sense it was unique in that God said, I want you to come close to me. I want to be close to you. You're taking a journey. I'm going to be journeying with you. And I'm going to provide a system whereby we can dwell and live together. It also had its limitations. Matter of fact, it was so limited that it gets more restrictive as you begin to think about it. The average Israelite never got beyond the altar. The average Israelite never used the labor, only the priest. The average Levite could go in here, but only the high priest in here one day a year. You couldn't be a priest if you were from the tribe of Zebulon. If you were even from the tribe of Judah, you couldn't be a priest. You had to be of the family of Levi. And, boy, it wouldn't have been very woke, would it? You had to be a man. You couldn't be a woman and be a priest. Back under that system. But here's the beauty of what God has done. And I'm really fast-forwarding a bit now, you see. Because what we read in Hebrews chapter 9 is the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit testifies that while this system was standing, the way into the holiest was not yet made open. But a wonderful thing happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross, didn't it? Anybody tell me one of the things that was significant when Christ died on the cross? And it happened with this particular piece right here. Yes, Luca. Yes, but what happened with this piece right here? Yes. The veil was torn from the top to the bottom. And the Spirit of God was testifying that the way into the holiest was now made open. And that if you're saved, if you've come to Jesus Christ as Savior, it's a new and a living way you now have direct access into the very presence of God. And through the blood that he shed and the death that he died and his resurrection, he has constituted every believer, whether male or female, as a priest. That blew the Hebrew mind. I mean, the Jews had a prayer that went something like this. I thank God that you've made me not a Gentile or a woman. For Peter, as a Jew, to write now that you as a believer, male or female, could go directly into the presence of God. You didn't need a man to go through. You still need a priest. But that priest is the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you and I have the privilege of entering into that veil. You you know, I sometimes, in my thinking, look back historically and think, man, wouldn't it have been cool to live back then? Wouldn't it have been cool to see this? Wouldn't it have been cool to see the, the God's presence there on the Ark of the Covenant? Wouldn't it have been cool to see you know, some of the miracles and things that were done back then? And then I think, but what limitations there were? And how much better we are now? Even though, you see, it's not with us physical it's spiritual, which makes it a little harder to get wrap our minds around sometimes. But what God has brought us into, if we're believers in Christ, is so much far better. A priesthood of believers, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood that can go directly into the presence of God. And a woman. See, sometimes we make the mistake, I'm generalizing, but we talk about the priesthood of believers, and we, we kind of make that a little bit restrictive, like, That's what takes place maybe at the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. But it's way bigger than that. That you as a woman or you as a man, if a believer in Christ, you can go directly into God's presence. And you don't have to go through a human being or a human priesthood to have your prayers heard and answered by the living God. You've been brought close, you see. It's incredible, isn't it? You know, um, and, and there's so many things. You know, I get sort of get off, I don't know if it's off track or not, but, you know, the priest, when he came in here, this, this incense altar stood. And I'm going to pull this back so these folks can see a little bit too. 
Imagine now, I just goosebumps thinking about it. The priest comes in and hears incense and he's communing with the God who's sitting right here enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant, the, the mercy seat. And the priest could get so close, he could get right up next to this veil. And just behind this veil was the very presence of the living God. That's amazing, isn't it? And when you think of the New Testament, um, oh, this is going to be a real hard one, but I'm going to just throw it out there. Can anybody, this is going to be really hard to remember this, probably, or just to draw from memory. Does anybody remember John chapter 1, verse 14? Go through your memory and think, if, and maybe if I start you out, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. The Son of God. So John 1 says, um, in the beginning was uh, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says, and the Word was made flesh. It's a big word we use sometimes called incarnation, which simply means he took on a body of flesh. But when you think about it, he tabernacled among us. And here the Son of God came down in a body of flesh. How close could they get? Well, John, who writes that gospel called the disciple that Jesus loved, laid his very head on the bosom, on the chest of the Son of God. And just behind that veil of human flesh, the very glory of God, imagine John putting his head on the chest of the very Son of God. And he could do that because of that body of flesh in that sense. Incredible, wasn't it? Now, these priests wouldn't have known that then. But it still must have been a phenomenal experience to think how close they could get. And yet God wanted us closer, didn't he? And that's why Jesus Christ came and died the death that he died. You see, Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter uh, 9 again, these things were a figure. And then it says in verse 11, Christ being come a high priest of good things to come. And so these things were a picture, but they were a picture, weren't they? of something better that was to come. So as wonderful as the system was, it had its limitations. And I don't know but what the Israelite who came time and again, and if they didn't have a lot of money, they could bring a dove. Certain sacrifices required a a bull. Others, a goat or a sheep or a lamb. And I don't know but what they brought those time and time and time again. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Do you think, this is, you don't have to answer this out loud, but it's just something to think about. Do you think that sometimes some of those Israelites thought, isn't there something better? Imagine, you see, and this is the whole argument of the writer to Hebrews in chapter 10. If there had been just one sacrifice that could have done the job, Why would you continue to offer over and over and over again? And any system of religion that continues to sacrifice is ignorant of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 10 will say, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down. And where did he sit? At the right hand. At the right hand? Yes. Well, no, no. think about it, though. In tabernacle language, imagine a Jewish person thinking, if this was the throne of God, and you're saying that Jesus Christ, I mean, if you put it in tabernacle language, he went and sat down on the mercy seat. (laughs) Nobody could sit there but God. And yet it's the very thing the writer of Hebrews says, doesn't he? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so, again, one of the great contrasts between the work of Jesus Christ, it pointed to the fact God was saying there's something better that's going to come. You'll notice another important word in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10, that these things stood in meats and drinks and various washings and earthly ordinances imposed on them until... Whenever you see that word until, it means that this was temporary. 
So while the Israelite in that day wouldn't have necessarily known everything about the Messiah that was going to come, one thing they could know, there's something better that's coming, and this whole thing was temporary. It was temporary. It was going to end. Something better was going to replace it. And so that's uh, what everything pointed to. Now, let's see. I think I'm going to stop for there. And uh, just before I do, I'm going to do a very risky thing and ask, are there any questions but about what I've kind of talked about thus far? Because there's a lot I haven't talked about thus far. You have a question. Shocker. <laughs> Why was there? Well, I haven't talked about that yet, but I am going to talk about that. But let me just ask you so you can think about uh, that. Um, because some of these pictures, well, they're pretty obvious, or, or they seem to speak to things. If you saw this, which is a table, and you saw there was bread, and you saw there was drink, what would you think about it? If you come into a room, as we're about to do, and you see food and drink and a table and plates, well, it certainly suggests to you about eating, wouldn't it? A meal. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the table of showbread. Anybody? Yes, ma'am. Why does that need to be white? You mean the the wall out here? Well, it was God's way of showing that he's a holy God. And if you're going to approach him, you have to come the way that he wants you to come because we are not like God. The Bible says we're sinners. God is pure and holy. And so that was a way of, in a picture, of talking about God's holiness and his character. Yes. Yes, sir. I suppose they could have tried. I don't know that I would have suggested it. <laughs> Bad things could happen, you see. But no, you know, it is an interesting question. If you were to go to the book of Numbers, chapters 2, 3, and 4, thereabouts, you'll find several times. So um, you know that these were the, the arrangement of the tribes of Israel. And they didn't just throw their tents up anywhere they wanted to. God said uh, certain tribes will camp here on the east side, some will camp on the west side, north side, south side, and all of that. But directly around this tabernacle, that's where the Levites were to put their tents. And part of the reason they would put their tents there, it specifically says in the book of Numbers, is they were to guard the tabernacle so nobody could just sneak in, so to speak. They were to keep people out who weren't supposed to be in there. Part of God's specific plan. You say, I thought God wanted everybody to come. Well, God wanted everybody to come, but he wanted them to come on his terms. And there were some people that were prevented from coming at all. And so the Levite's job was to guard and protect the tabernacle. Yes, sir. In this part? In here? Well, because, see, that was just a place where certain things were performed. Sacrifice, service. So you were only in there when you were doing those things. When you lived, you lived outside in a tent outside of the tabernacle. Nobody, really, it's a way of saying, too, nobody but God lived in here. They came in and served, but God's the only one who lived there. Yes, sir. This, that is called, yes, ma'am, a breastplate because it's on his chest. Now, if you come up and you want to look, again, credit to Sylvia Amos. Uh, She is the one who engraved in Hebrew the names of the 12 tribes, which are represented by these 12 stones. One, the, The first time I ever did this, which Randy Amos is the one who passed this on to me. Um, 
The first time I ever did a presentation was in Anderson, South Carolina. And it's always a little bit nervy when you got somebody in the audience. Two things. One, it's either a teacher who's, you know, really good in grammar. That always bugs me because uh, <laughs> I'm not. But this guy was a Hebrew prof- professor. Oh, boy, you know. Two things happened that time, which was very unique. I just called this one man the other day, just as a little side note. Years ago, I was in a little bookstore in Danville, Virginia, and uh, I I was always looking for books on the tabernacle. And I'm in this little podunk. I mean, it wasn't as big as a kitchen, hardly bookstore. And I find this book on the tabernacle. I bought two of them, gave one to Randy Amos. I still have one. So years later, I'm in Anderson, South Carolina, doing the tabernacle, and I, I had that book with me. And I'm looking on the back of the book, and I thought, hey, the man who wrote this lived here. I had no idea if he was even alive or not. And and so he wrote, in my opinion, one of the best books I've got on the tabernacle. Very well done. So I, I called the number on the back, and a man answered the phone. I said, is this Mr. Weaver? Yes. I said, Mr. Dean Weaver, the man who wrote the book on the tabernacle? Yes. I said, well, my name's Larry Price. I said, I'm going to be around uh, the certain street here uh, doing a presentation on a tabernacle, large tabernacle model. I, oh, yes, I'll be there at every meeting. <laughs> I, Whoa. <laughs> this guy wrote the book on it, you know. And he and his wife came, lovely couple. Uh, anyway, so that was one thing that got me kind of nervous. And then the Hebrew professor came, and he came up, and he started looking at these. Yes, he said, those are, those are accurate. That's the way they would have been. So, yes, this was a breastplate. One stone, 12. Why were there 12 stones? Yes, sir. 12 tribes. One for each tribe. And then uh, up here, inscribed on his shoulders... Six tribes here, six tribes here. Hard question. You get bonus points for this one. There's something actually behind this breastplate. There's a little pocket, and there's something in that pocket. Yes, ma'am. Yes, however you say them. Let me see. Ah, yeah, you wondered what they looked like, didn't you? Now you know. We don't know exactly what they look like. We don't know exactly how they worked. There's all kind of interesting ideas. One guy I, I talked to said, well, I think what happened was when they used these, you know, it, then it started lighting up the letters of these names on the breastplate. So they asked God a question. He kind of spelled it out. Well, maybe. I don't know. It's kind of stretched. But somehow or another, these were used to determine the will of God, whether they glowed, vibrated. I don't know. But the Urim... The Urim and the Thummim. Okay, we're going to stop now and take, what do we do? Take a little break? Five minutes? All right, let's take a five-minute break, then we'll come back.